Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock, with co-host... Coffee Brown. And here we are again in the middle of summer. It's been a little bit of a delay. Uh, we, do have, we do have fun things planned for you, uh, podcast audience. Uh, our next guest that we have on tap uh, is Marco Del Guidici, who has written a paper in which he talks about microbial hijacking of our brains and when we should expect that and what is the evidence uh, for that sort of um, microbial behavior. Uh, Today, though, we're not going to talk about bad microbes. We're going to talk about good ones. And and Coffee, you had a question for me. I got to say about that other paper, by the way, a quick uh, plug for that. I can't remember the last time I had so much fun reading a dense scientific journal article. And so and that's one to look forward to. Today is kind of a special auxiliary backup special podcast episode because we hadn't planned one and we got into this conversation and thought we might share it. Right. So this we is did. totally impromptu. With, <laughs> we, with all your fangirls out there. Yeah. We just happened to happen to run, each, run into each other and decided to record this conversation. So, Joe, I've asked you about this before and not felt like I fully understood the answer. Do we know enough now about microbiomes to use it in a practical medical sense. Would you, as an expert on this topic, feel comfortable opening a clinic based around microbiome therapies? And that's a really interesting question. If I thought that I could get away with it, I might do it. In terms of opening up a clinic that was specifically tailored to prescribing uh, some microbiome altering therapies. And in particular, we'd be talking about probiotics. So probiotics, just to define them, they're they're defined as a living organism that has a beneficial impact on health. So and of course, the paradigm is lab culture yogurt. It would be yeah, something something like yogurt. Well, not all yogurts can make that claim that contain probiotics. So if you go to the supermarket, if they do contain live cultures, by and large, they're going to be they're going to be a Lactobacillus, um, Acidophilus, or Bulgaricus, or very, very common microbe. And many of those species are indeed probiotic, but some will say living probiotic cultures. And they, they have to, they typically have to back that up with some some data, some some claim that the microbe does in, in fact impact our health in, in a positive way. So I'm learning something already. So the mere fact that it is live culture and would introduce some flora to your gut doesn't qualify it as a probiotic. Well, it might. We'll just say it's a, it's a squishy, uh, concept and it's a, it's a bit of a moving target. But we want to use probiotic to mean bacterial cultures that will benefit you in some way if they're introduced yeah. to your gut flora. And, and along these lines, did you know that if you sell a yogurt or something that contains some beneficial microbe in Europe, that you can't even use the term probiotic? And why is that? Well, it's because the term itself basically implies a health claim. Okay. And, and so they say, they say you can't, so the word, the EU, as I understand it, uh, the regulatory agency, the FDA equivalent, and the EU, they will not let uh, nutrients or, or, or food manufacturers include the word probiotic because it implies a health claim. Now, I did not know that it, that it implicitly meant that. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the definition. All right. So if it's a probiotic, it therefore must be good. End of story. So if that's the case, I should just open up the clinic, sell my probiotics, and be on with it, right? Well, given that... that you feel con- well that's the next question do we know what probiotics everybody needs do i need the same ones you do i have a different diet than you a different metabolism than you um i'm a different generation than you uh mm-hmm. so and what if i were a different gender or a different uh ethnicity or something would those things change the optimal probiotic profile for me well they may not change the optimal probiotic profile but they probably would change the biological activity of a, of a given probiotic microbe in you in terms of their impacts on your physiology. So yeah, all those things are, are going to be the case. Uh, I just got back from a conference that the topic was probiotics and I looked at some of these questions about the science behind probiotics and uh, and some industry and regulatory considerations for probiotics. And this was the Probiota Americas conference up in Vancouver, Canada. So full disclosure, I am on the scientific advisory board for Probiota America, and as a result, uh, they gave me 
um, you know, complimentary admission to the conference. They didn't pay for my hotel or airfare, paid for my own meals uh, for the most part while I was there. Um, but just to make sure that all my disclosures are out there. Um, but you might imagine that um, that I could be biased because I do serve on this advisory committee. Well, I think I can balance that because um, I'm not, I don't have any such connections. Mm-hmm. I don't have any strong opinions. And I'm still at a point where I'm sort of questioning everything I hear and read, even from you, who your knowledge dwarfs mine on this, but you know, me asking questions is kind of what the format is here. Right. So I'm not really, uh, uh, I don't have a disclosure. Okay. So let's bring it back to your original question. Like, is there enough evidence that I could close up shop and then open up a new enterprise in which we were focused mostly on, on probiotics? I think there are certainly people that are doing something, things that are similar to this. And there are probiotic manufacturers, of course, that are making profits selling probiotics. So it's possible to make make a living doing this. The question is yeah. that as a scientific skeptic, which I do endorse, and that has how I see myself, is there enough evidence for me to do this? And I would say probably maybe not yet. This is my squishy answer to that. And the... And the the answer, well, do probiotics work, of course, is a complicated question. And you've already raised some of the nuances about gender, age, you know, comorbid conditions, the medications you're on, your diet, all these things are going to probably influence whether a probiotic may or may not work for you. Um, but I think that we can say with a reasonable amount of certainty that at least for adults, so grown people, um, probiotics have a modest impact on our bodies. Um, and so it's nothing like you know, as far compared to the, the other drugs that we might use, if I want to inject you with epinephrine or insulin or any of a number of other medications, that a lot of our pharmaceuticals that we use in clinical medicine are have more powerful effects than probiotics. Um, but probiotics are special in ways that uh, we can get into. Right, I can see. Well, we'll talk about that. Um, I was actually also, as I envisioned this clinic, thinking more broadly. Mm-hmm. For example, you might talk to me about how my diet affects the uh, my, my microbiome profile. You want more of this bug, less of that bug, and so eat more of this and less of that. Or, um, for example, one person might want to gain weight, and they, so they might want a diet that, with a, a bug in it that promotes ghrelin, produces ghrelin, We've talked about in previous podcasts that some of these guys produce hormones. Right. Well, the hormone I might want my gut flora to produce would partly depend on what I was trying to accomplish. And that's an, that's an excellent point. To the extent that we can consume living organisms, probiotics that have some beneficial impact on us, we can say the same, and maybe even to a greater degree, when we just look at dietary impacts. So sure. from the in the probiotic literature, the way to think about this is to call foods that feed probiotics prebiotics. So that, that's the term for that, prebiotics. But basically fruit, food in general, many foods are going to be prebiotic, fiber in particular. So with regard to appetite, fiber feeds fibrolytic microbes, uh, among them acromansia, uh, mucinophila, which is thought to be probably a beneficial microbe. God, I love it when you talk that way. <laughs> so the, the downstream result of this fiber degradation are free fatty acids, things like acetate and propionate uh, and butyrate. And we have in our bodies free fatty acid receptors. And those um, the free fatty acid receptor three uh, recognizes those microbial products, the digestion of fiber, and it does influence satiety. So this is one of the reasons why when you have a fi- high fiber diet, you probably are going to want to eat less overall because those appetite hormones are going to be stimulated um, in a sort of a negative feedback way by uh, activation of free fatty acid receptors. I see a couple of trade-offs in what you just said, though. For one thing, we eat fiber because it's indigestible. We want it to drag cholesterol out and things like that uh, in the form of bile. Uh, And the other is that um, that means that we are getting some calories from fiber that we hadn't sort of factored in as calories. As we promote these this microflora, I'm going to extract more calories from fiber than I would have at the beginning of this uh, new diet, let's yeah. say. And these fatty acids you're describing, I don't have a mental picture of them, do they tend to be trans or cis, and do they tend to be saturated or polyunsaturated? These are technically saturated, so for every carbon 
molecule. They so they're have, not ideal fatty acids they have, for us to be producing. But they're very, very short. So acetate, um, sort of acetic acid, right? <clears throat> so vinegar. Uh, that's a that's a product of microbial fermentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're oftentimes liquid at room temperature, so it's not like a stick of butter. Um, they're very they're very short chain, uh, you know, three, two, four um, carbon molecules. But they're they're technically they're, they're saturated fats. Uh, but they behave very differently, and some people, uh, because they are liquid and sometimes even um, they're, they're 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 volatile, they call them volatile uh, fatty acids. So they do they occupy this different space uh, in terms of fatty acids and fat in general. So you make a good point that because they're short chain, they act like liquids. Mm-hmm. I actually read an interesting article. And I wish I could recall the citation at the moment. That pointed out that the harm of these trans and saturated fatty acids is that they're more rigid. When they get incorporated into cell membranes, the cell membranes themselves are less supple. That's right. I.e., this is essentially a mechanical effect. I had mm-hmm. been thinking it was a biochemical effect, but it's a mechanical effect, at least as this article was presenting it. Um, do you know much about that, and does that mean that short-chain fatty acids we don't have to worry as much about the trans or saturation components? We don't. We don't need to worry about the saturation component. That's interesting. At all. Okay. Uh, and they they tend to have beneficial impacts on our bodies. Not a hundred percent, but they tend to be more healthful for us than uh, than longer chain saturated fats like palmitic acid or stearic acid. But it does mean that the benefit profile of fiber is different at the beginning of a high fi- high fiber diet, higher fiber diet, than after you've been doing it for a while because you've trained your microbiome to break it down. Uh, yeah, you would need to have the microbes there to, in sufficient numbers to be able to do this. And I suppose if you went from very quickly from a low fiber diet to a high fiber diet, one of the reasons why you might experience stomach upset is because those shifts in terms of the composition of the microbiome in your gut. People are, who are do happy. that often complain of feeling gassy and yeah. they often complain of diarrhea. Now, I had imagined their gut simply learns how to handle the bulk better, but it may be there is less bulk. I think this is a this is an it. ecological issue. Yeah, gut are, ecology. Yeah, that things are changing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make a couple other points about uh, fiber. We could get into the fatty acid thing, which that's that that's super interesting. I, I will say that with regard to making cell walls rigid and um, and making them more fluid, that you might people have argued that we should be taking uh, marine long chain unsaturated fatty acids like EPA and DHA, the hohexanoic acid, uh, from marine sources. It's thought to be good for your brain. Your neurons take up some of this. And you can just, from a simplistic way, making your neurons more fluid, you could imagine, would make your brain more agile and make it so that you could think better and be cognitively more alert and acute. I hadn't thought of movement of the membranes as being critical to the function of neurons, although I can certainly see how it's critical to the function of blood cells and endothelium. That... The composition of your of your brain, and it does have a lot of these long chain fatty acids in them. If we know epidemiologically and also physiologically that that having access to these omega three unsaturated fats that tend to be more fluid than their saturated counterparts, that having those is associated with better cognitive abilities. Now I apologize for this intro, but if I don't do this, a bunch of neuroscientists out there are going to roll their eyes at this next question. Mm-hmm. I realize that neuroplasticity does not mean modeling the neurons like Play-Doh. When I ask this question about neuroplasticity, that's not the picture I have in my mind. But it does cross my mind that more supple neuronal membranes might be more agile at developing new dendrites and connections. And let's Do we just, know anything about that? Let's just say that this is a hypothesis. And I think, you know, I don't think that that's the whole answer. Uh, but but that's one. I, that's why I say it's, it's a simplistic way of looking at some of these complicated things. Mm-hmm. From the perspective of the microbiome, when we eat these things in our diet, we are not only affecting the composition of our own cells, but the microbiome is also in this milieu, and they're taking up free fatty acids in their cell membranes. And we, by virtue of the things that we eat, and also by some of the byproducts of, of fiber, we can make we can destabilize cell membranes of pathogenic microbes in the gut so i have published with some colleagues a paper on this topic and and it does i think that that the physical chemical properties of free fatty acids are actually really important 
and they work with other parts of our immune system to, to basically control and harness uh, microbes in our guts. And are we talking about the omegas here, like omega-3s? Yeah, so omega-3s. Omega-3s tend to solubilize the membranes of harmful bacteria. They make those cells more likely to lice, and in a low pH environment, or if there's antimicrobial peptides, those, those harmful bacteria have a harder time surviving and reproducing. Now, I That's want true. a tangent for just a second. We talked about maritime fatty acids. I am yeah. chary of that because the ocean before human predation decimated it mm -hmm. was already mostly desert. It was already 90% desert. People don't realize that. The ocean is not as full of life as we think it is. Mm -hmm. We've been pillaging the coastal oases, and they are not recovering. Right. Um, so I don't really want to start a big stampede on raiding the oceans unnecessarily. But we do it already. Right. So if the, the benefits to us, though, are not gigantic, and or if these omegas are uh, more available through replicable sources like nuts, then I, I guess I personally would like to advocate against emphasizing maritime sources because they can, they're not sustainable. Yeah, so you can get it from ag agricultural sources like flaxseed mm -hmm. uh, that has a um, omega-3 fatty acid. Uh, the marine ones are thought to be better because they are a little bit longer in length. Uh, okay, but, Mr. Blue Whale Killer. Yeah, but the, 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 ultimate, the ultimate source of these things is algae, right? These are like dinoflagellates, little single-celled organisms in the in the sea that are producing the omega-3s. They get taken up in fish. Well, but yeah, no, there's they're fish in great numbers. Uh, scenario yeah, where uh, harvesting algae mm -hmm. could actually benefit the ocean and us at the same time. We haven't gotten in the habit of making food products out of algae, but you're right, it's a potentially great source of food, just as harvesting calories from grass is makes a lot more sense than harvesting them from cows. Harvesting calories and other nutrients from algae makes a lot more sense than harvesting them from fish. And it would allow more sunlight to penetrate deeper and help recover some of the deserts. I like my seaweed salad. Yeah, I yeah. do too, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Asia, Seaweed is uh, commonly consumed. Now, algae isn't right. seaweed, but the flavor is somewhat similar, and the texture is, too, when it's prepared by drying it in strips. Yeah, but kelp, as you mentioned, is, is the one of the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, plants mm -hmm. than, you know, compared to anything else, and it, it has amazing ca capability of carbon uh, fixation. Yeah, marine agriculture is an actually underdeveloped science right, right now that could help to offset some of the harm that we've been doing. Okay. Great. That was a great tangent. Um, I'm on bring, now back to our topic. <laughs> I right? want to bring it back to probiotics. <laughs> this conference I just went to, and there were there were several notable findings. But as I was listening to them, and I'm not going to get into the details. I'll try to maybe put some of the notes into the into the a blog entry uh, with the proper credits. But the two main findings that I remember are that uh, one author did a meta analysis of looking at probiotics for weight loss. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of interest in this, and we've hypothesized that probiotics might have this. I was just effect. about to ask about reproducibility yeah. in this area too. It sounds like you're getting right there. So this is a published meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials, and they they got rid of low-quality trials, so ones that they simply didn't trust the results. And the and there was still a, a huge number of remaining trials. And of those, there was a modest decrease in body weight when probiotics were prescribed for body weight. And these were, there were different species that were tried. We'd have to go back, but I think we can assume that one might be something like Lactobacillus reuteri, which is a common probiotic that's used and does have impacts on metabolism. Anyway, but the overall impact, while it was significant, it may not be clinically significant because it was about 1.5 kilos, so maybe three pounds. Now, if someone is really morbidly obese um, or just very overweight, losing three or four pounds may not be enough to make a difference. You know, though, if it's a long-term sustainable effect, mm -hmm. we might do better to think about the pounds not gained over the next 30 years rather than pounds lost starting from today. Right. Now, that's a great point. So sort of avoided weight gain. Mm -hmm. It's very mm -hmm. typical for people as we go through life. I just turned 50 years old, so I'm aware of this. Um, but as we as we get older, we tend to gain weight, and this is a 
natural phenomenon that, that we can just see epidemiologically. If we do a weight curve and we plot it by age, we're going to see a weight go up. And it's not muscle weight for most people. This is mostly fat. It's adipose tissue. So the question is, can we avoid some of these things with, with microbes? And there was an epidemiologist. His name is uh, Darius Mozafarian. He's a Harvard nutritionist and epidemiologist. He did uh, a study that looked at 120,000 people over a, I believe it was a 20-year period, and then asked the question with the food frequency questionnaire, um, what were the foods that, that were most associated with weight gain, and what were, which were the ones that were associated with the least amount of weight gain? French fries was the number one weight gain food, and potatoes, potatoes in, general. in general. I'm actually Pro familiar with this study. Processed food. It's a super interesting study. Yeah. yeah. Processed meats, uh, red meat, um, sugar-sweetened drinks, all these were associated with significant weight gain. The number one food that was protective against weight gain was yogurt. So there's your probiotics. Cheese didn't do badly. And it cheese was about didn't, neutral. Cheese Nuts did. were associated with weight loss. That's right. Uh, so some of the high nutrient foods that you might expect would be associated with gain were not. So this, you're right. So a calorie is not a calorie. You can consume whole milk, yogurt, and and even whole milk and cheese and not gain weight, according to this study. <laughs> At least that it was it was neutral. Uh, whereas if you load up on the potato chips, you might be in trouble. So a calorie is not a calorie, and the packaging of the calorie makes a big difference. But the yogurt example gives us a clue that the microbiome plays a big role in this, in terms of whether we're going to gain or lose weight. Having said that, if we take a probiotic in pill form, the effects are relatively modest. They're there, but they're modest. Is that because the pill form is taken like once and people forget about it? I mean, are they taking a pill like once a day for a while? And should that matter, given that these things are supposed to reproduce in your gut? Yeah. So let's get to that second point about them reproducing in your gut. And, and, uh, and just think about sort of the volume of uh, the microbe. Um, this is why I think that food is such powerful medicine. Because food, especially if you, t if you take it over a long period of time, we know that it can transform the microbiome. And there was, there was work done by David and colleagues a few years ago, probably 20 15, maybe 2014, where they showed that if you change from a vegetarian to a meat diet, you can transform the microbiome in 24 hours, a very short amount of time. So that tells us that, that food, the foods you eat have big impacts on the microbes in your gut. So as opposed to taking a little pill that may just have a very, very tiny impact on your microbiome. You may not even be able to measure it, um, particularly if, if they don't take up residence in your gut. So that's why I think food trumps all. That's why if you want to be healthy, taking food and not supplements, and taking your probiotics as food, like yogurt, or taking your prebiotics that's going to benefit the beneficial microbes in your gut. Those are good strategies. Now, I am quite sure that stem cells are going to become a transformative component of medicine throughout the 21st century. I'm also quite sure that the people that are presently offering stem cell therapies are nearly all quacks. Right. In that same vein, I'm quite sure that micro... Well, I'm not as sure, but I, I think it's likely that microbiomes will be important uh, as a medical modality. But I'm also pretty sure that the people who are presently offering microbiome therapies are not ready for prime time. If you're not, they're sure not. You know. So um, when they do this, is part of the their regimen to clean people out with antibiotics first in order to give the newly introduced microbiome a better chance of setting up shop. That's definitely done experimentally when people have, have uh, done studies like this. Um, I don't think it probably isn't ethically okay for otherwise healthy people to take a, a series of indigest or unabsorbable antibiotics that we take by mouth that clear out the gut. Um, this is something which is reserved mostly for animal you experimentation. Know, it'd be great to attach this to colonoscopies. Right. You could do a huge study in a short amount of time just by taking the next thousand colonoscopies who agree to do it and put half of them on a real microbiome and half of them on some sort of pseudo 
probiotic. I wonder if that's been done. So you're right. A bowel prep is basically the same. You're eliminating as much of the gut microbiome as you possibly can. Yeah, and it's already being done for therapeutic reasons. Right. It's not an intervention that you're doing for the sake of your experiment. Your intervention comes afterward when people have to recover their microflora anyway. Right. You're just trying to find out, can I beneficially influence that recovery of microflora? You'd still need IRB and all that. I get that, but... But I, I wonder if that's been done. So Sounds like a likely. We'll have to look into yeah. that one and, and get back to you, audience, about <laughs> that one. All right. But the second thing I took away from this conference, besides the fact that probiotics have real biological effects, but the effect size is relatively small for many things. And, of course, I just gave you one example, and that was weight loss. <clears throat> but when we say things like a blanket statement like probiotics work or they don't work, it's much more, you have to specify what is the condition you're talking about, what is the population we're treating, and what is the microbe that we're using. And a lot of times, that's all, you know, people don't get to that level of, of specificity. But you really need to do that when you make a statement about probiotics either working or not working. And I would agree with a common criticism of medicine that we're better at reversing pathology than we are at optimizing um, physiology. So we tend to consider average or normal a win. I don't. I don't think average and normal are the best we can be by a long shot, whether we're talking psychological or physiologic health. Um, Lance Armstrong is very far from average or normal. A lot of us would settle for average. A lot of people would. It would be a huge upgrade to get to average. <laughs> right. But for people who are average, mm -hmm. why shouldn't we aim higher than that? You know, why not aim for optimizing? Of course, that would depend on us knowing what optimizing is. So yeah. another tangent, uh, my students lately, last few years, they've been interested in the question of what is ideal weight? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It depends on, I guess, how you define ideal. So where this came from was a lot of women athletes have been complaining, and some male athletes as well, that they're being pressured to look like athletes, like we imagine athletes ought to look, right? And so if they're chunkier in the coach's eyes than his ideal because he's been flipping through a Victoria's Secret catalog or something, they get pressured to lose weight. And a lot of people, um, uh, Mark, what's her, Linda Rousey's, the, the martial artist, mm -hmm. apparently she, she weighs quite a lot less when she's modeling between competitive uh, cycles oh. than when she's competing. And a lot of female athletes are saying, you know, I'm this weight when I'm competing and I'm that weight in between times because people might take my picture. So what we, in our mind's eye, have calibrated in this generation, it varies a lot from generation to generation, is ideal weight, isn't the same as the weight at which an athlete performs the best. That might be a yardstick we could use. On the other hand, it may well depending be on sport. that you can't spend your whole lifetime in the same condition as when you're competing at the absolute upper elite end of human potential. Uh, people break their bodies down doing super endurance sports and stuff. Where's that? So maybe we might want to look at what weight correlates with the longest lifespan or the longest period of independent living, which is a slightly different question. Depending on how we ask the question, we'd get different numbers. So first we have to define what ideal means in the sense of ideal weight, and then we have to go find out and find out what correlates with it instead of betting on what magazines have told us we should look like. Well, there's a whole area of evolutionary biology and evolutionary theory called life history theory. And so that viewpoint argues that for any kind of parameter that we're looking at, whatever the optimum is gonna be different depending on say what stage of life you're in. So if you're talking about female athletes, if a female athlete like, uh, boy, didn't Venus Williams get pregnant? That would <laughs> be news to me but i am aware that she's a yeah yeah she, she was recently but she was recently pregnant and um <clears throat> of course one's weight during pregnancy is going to be very different from uh your state before and after pregnancy and whatever is optimal is going to be different depending on trimester etc um, and getting back to say fat and adiposity which is how much of your body weight happens to be fat uh one of my uh, co-authors on the, the fatty acid paper, uh, Chris Kazawa. He's an anthropologist, and he's made part of his career looking into body fat. Um, and interestingly, and this actually relates to some of the stuff that we've talked about on, on previous podcasts, he wrote a paper just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, 
in which he showed that there's a trade-off, a life history trade-off, between brain development and how fast your brain uh, develops and how much fat you have. This is looking at, at children, at kids. So kids are born fat, so babies. Babies are, that's, that's pretty much almost the fattest that we are. Um, most, a lot of our body weight as infants, as newborns, is, is adipose tissue. We're, and we love our chubby babies. That's the one stage in life in which we kind of glorify uh, being fat. Um, babies, as they get a little bit older, um, they tend to become a little bit leaner. Um, and that, and the, the time when, when children become are the leanest is when the brain is growing the fastest. So that tells us that our, our bodies have evolved to take calories from diet and then devote them to different purposes. And that uh, fat deposition and brain growth are, are a bit at cross purposes. I wouldn't have drawn that cause and effect conclusion. Well, he draws that at least makes it a possibility. He proposes that this is a this is a real thing. All right. And one of the things that he's he's shown is that if you can just take a look at when the brain has its most its, its highest energetic needs, um, that is when we tend to put on the least amount of fat as as when we're growing. Um, and and you can but that also varies from person to person and place to place and population to population. So his idea was that if we shift uh, we want to make that as late as possible. If we can shift this maximum brain, brain energetic needs later in childhood, then that's going to have a twofold effect. One, kids are probably going to form, perform better cognitively, and it can, you, you can actually measure differences in terms of the size of different brain structures, and it may help reduce some of the obesity epidemic, according to his, his line of thinking. I've had a not evidence-based, just observational impression for a while. Mm -hmm. that there is an inverse correlation between how rapidly kids develop and how far they develop. Now, for example, with the infant Hercules syndrome, they tend to get really brawny, but they don't get full as tall. Okay. Uh, and so they become muscular. They hit puberty earlier. They get brawny earlier, but they tend to be short adult males, mm -hmm. short brawny adult males. Um, I've kind of had the sense that the same thing sort of happens cognitively. It's not true, by the way, that Einstein failed his early classes. He taught himself calculus at home before high school. But um, it, it is true that he apparently was somewhat slower to sort of get interested in social development. I'm, I'm avoiding saying he was socially underdeveloped because I think it was a matter of interest rather than aptitude. But slower development in some ways often leads to greater overall development. Humans develop more slowly than almost any other animal, but we get further. Uh, is that so true between humans So getting well? back to the, the life history theory idea, uh, there is a general distinction between organisms that have a fast life history and organisms that have a slow life history. So usually large organisms like a bowhead whale or a blue whale or an African elephant um, those take a long time to develop. Uh, they tend to have a prolonged childhood, and they reach a greater size overall. Uh, and as far as the, the there is probably a longer time in between offspring, and usually there's only one offspring. So this is true for elephants. It's true for whales. It's true for humans. So among primates, we're the longest lived. We're the slowest to develop, and we have uh, we have more time in between offspring compared to chimpanzees or other other primates. All those things are true. So when a mom brags that her kid learned to walk earlier than the next kid, is she actually predicting a uh, shorter overall trajectory for him? That's a great point. You know, yeah. So the downside of uh, precocity, right? Precociousness. Precocity. <laughs> precocity. <laughs> uh, that we should probably be happy if our kids are slow, uh, late bloomers, right? I'm speculating that might be the case. Yeah, maybe. I wonder. Um, so yeah, so, so life history theory uh, ex can explain a lot, a lot of features of kind of how fast we grow, when we put on fat, and that, that sort of thing. Okay. I'm looking for the, uh, the paper by Kazawa so I can give it to you. Um, it was just published. So back to our hypothetical microbiome clinic. Um, which I suspect we will see over the next decade or two. We'll start seeing them pop up here and there. And hopefully some of them that are actually what you and I would call evidence-based. Yeah. Um, so adjusting diet, 
looking at how other lifestyle factors affect it. For example, how does my stress level affect my microbiome? How does my microbiome affect my stress level? And what therapeutic regimens could you put on to optimize those interactions? I can really see it as being a pretty holistic, and here I'm spelling it with a W, a really holistic approach to uh, patient care, even though it seems to revolve around what's presently a niche aspect of medicine, microbiomes. So you think we should do it? Yeah. I'm just not sure. Well, I asked you earlier about the reproducibility of these studies. I had gotten the impression it's a little wobbly. Well, it depends on, again, what you're looking at. Um, I think that that example of the weight loss meta-analysis, if you look at any individual trial, there were results that were kind of all over the map, and you had to look at the cumulative effect of many of them while doing a few manipulations, not manipulations, but you know procedures to try to get rid of the low-quality papers to see an effect. So what that tells us is that the effect size is small, if it exists, and what we also know is that we see species different effects and strain effects. So remarkably, even with the same species, say a lactobacillus uh, rhamnosus, that's a common probiotic, that a given strain might have an impact on, on your body or, or your physiology that's, that, that's lacking in another strain that we would, just, we, would, we would identify as being the exact same microbe. That doesn't surprise me. One kind of E. coli is a necessary microbiome flora and another kind will kill us outright. Right. So, yeah. So that's true. Yeah, we do that. In fact, E. coli is a great example of this. And there's all, sort, all sorts of different strains of E. coli that some cause hemorrhagic dysentery and can cause kidney failure. Um, other ones, there's a e, an E. coli nissel strain, which is a probiotic strain. So it really runs the gamut from absolute you know, harmful microbe to, to positive one. But that strain-specific result is something really worth getting into and I think has been under-recognized. Mm -hmm. And it just mm -hmm. makes makes the question, are, are probiotics useful or not, a bit of a you know, non-sequitur. So uh, to be clear, and here I'm, I'm kind of speaking for our listeners more than for you, um, when I asked the question about reproducibility, I wasn't so much getting at the validity of the basic concept as I was at, do we know what to measure and how to measure it? And, and so are, are we at a point now where we actually know what to do with all this? And it feels to me like we're still in a prototypical stage of this branch of medicine. I think we are still at early days. I think there was a lot of excitement and there, there has been a lot of excitement. Uh, there have been a lot of promising studies that really suggest that there are, are these, these beneficial things. Uh, but in terms of the science, it is, it is possible that we got a little bit ahead of ourselves in, in terms of making claims. And maybe this is also true of the probiotic industry. Having said that, like I said, I am convinced, based on the reading that I've done and my knowledge of the literature, mm -hmm. that there are important biological effects. And that those effects, they may be modest under certain kinds of trial um, scenarios, but again, over a lifetime, these, these effects are probably really, really important. And also each of them is a sentinel pointing us to whole new areas of research that can lead to uh, even stronger effects. For example, if we knew what strains to promote and then we promoted them, selecting for them as we did when we turned maize into corn, we could wind up with much more pronounced effects than what we're seeing now. So that's, I don't find that off-putting. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice if we could tell at that level of specificity. Yeah. Now, this early enthusiasm is necessary for this science, this branch of science to get up and running. But at some point, we're going to have to pay as much attention to what are the trade-offs as we do to what are the benefits. That's true. I did want to um, give uh, credit where credit is due. So this is Christopher Kuzawa with co-author Clancy Blair. And this is in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. This is published June 17th, just a few days ago. A hypothesis linking the energy demand of the brain to obesity risk. And this this actually relates a little bit to what we were talking about uh, um, before with kind of intermittent fasting. We talked about that and, and, and mm -hmm. brain and cognition. Mm -hmm. um, but this is really kind of looking at the same phenomena, but in terms of there being a, an energetic trade-off. Well, the brain is around 2% of our body weight and about 20% of our calorie usage. So that's you know, not astonishing. In fact, what is a little more astonishing is you would imagine, for example, chess players would lose weight 
faster than factory workers or something, you know. But so far as I know, nobody's actually shown that to be so. Right. And of course, when you talk about the percentage of body weight emitted by the brain, it's going to make a big difference about what, where you are in your life. And our brains are much bigger as a proportion of our bodies when we're, when we're tiny children. Not less calorie intensive, though, if anything, more so. That's right. Children. I'm uh, looking up the strain-specific <laughs> slide from the conference. There were there were lots of good presentations, uh, especially on the last day of the conference. Um, let's talk for just for a moment. This is a uh, a researcher who talked about uh, you used fruit flies as a model for the microbiome. And they have a simple, simplified microbiome. Um, they don't live very long. Uh, you can control their microbiome by, by basically giving them different strains. I'm visualizing an obese fruit fly, though. I'm like, oh, I just couldn't have another banana. Well, right. one. Well, some of them, yeah. <laughs> I think they actually can get fat. They actually can. Um, but remarkably, uh, this investigator showed that um, you can manipulate different features of the of the animal's life by changing uh, different strains of probiotics. Mm -hmm. You can make them live longer, you can make them live shorter, um, you can actually have a lot of control over the health of a fly based on which specific strains that we're introducing into the fly. So he was arguing that we can use these inferences from fruit flies and then extrapolate to people. Um, that, may, that may or may not be true. I can certainly imagine people saying, well, maybe for something as simple as a fruit fly, but we're much more complex. I think it's likely that the effects are subtler in a more complex cognitive mechanism yeah but um that doesn't that wouldn't mean that those effects aren't there it's just that they get blended with a lot of other effects so the total number of things that affects how a fruit fly thinks may be smaller than the total number of things that affect how you and i think that's true one of the things that where probiotics at least the, the concept of probiotics is probably the most important is in infancy and early development. Because that's where there's a lot of great evidence from epidemiologists and from basic re science uh, researchers as well as uh, clinical trialists that the composition, the bugs that are present and the diet that you get, specifically breast milk, which is has a big chunk of uh, the breast milk calories go to fertilizing strain-specific microbes in the gut is down to that level of specificity, we know that those impacts are really important. And they can set you off on a trajectory of life that can lead one towards obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and strokes, or protection from all those things, and in particular protection also from autoimmune diseases, asthma, and allergies. So do we think that neonatologists and parents are going to become early adapters, or is it enough to say moms breastfeed your kids for a while? Well, you know, breastfeeding is at least a little bit controversial. I think that we in medicine, most of us see the benefits of breastfeeding and want to advocate for that in, in patients. Uh, from the flip side, I've had women, some women tell me that some women can't breastfeed for some reason or another, and they don't want to feel guilty about not breastfeeding if they can't do it. Um, and others are simply, society is designed in such a way that it's difficult for them to do it. Mm -hmm. There's no place mm -hmm. for them to do it at work. Um, they can't arrange, you know, you have to pump and then refrigerate or freeze and then get the milk to your kid. It's just, it's, it can be a super complicated arrangement. Um, so there's some sociological factors that are involved there, too. I, it would be great, though, if we could <laughs> tailor a specific a probiotic breast milk equivalent. And there are some that people, some, some organizations are working on these kinds of problems, again, for women that can't breastfeed for some reason or another. Um, come up with an artificial breast milk, which actually does benefit the baby's microbiome in a similar way. I'm going to go a little further, too. I think that women who choose not to breastfeed, they don't need to explain to anyone that they can't breastfeed or they're too busy to breastfeed or whatever. I think that seems to me to be legitimately a personal choice thing. I, I, I'm aware that the American College of Pediatricians, and based on my readings, I would agree, endorse breastfeeding. But I don't think it's such a, uh, a a definite effect that we need to castigate women who make a different choice. You know, I think that well there's said. way more evil things that we can differ on. You know, well said. No, that's true. That's true. Um, from a purely scientific standpoint, though, the science 
in favor of breastfeeding, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. It's pretty good. Like, there's lots of, of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the effect size is definite, but it's not gigantic. Yeah. And as far as bringing things back to evolution, breast milk is the ultimate evolved food. That's what I, I tell my students. Absolutely. All other things being equal, I'm, I'm in the endorsed breastfeeding club. Mm-hmm. But all other things are not equal. A mom who's happy and satisfied and sets a good example for her kids by getting a great education or a career or she works in the public sector or community service or something and her kid didn't get breastfed but has this fantastic example at home i'm not i'm not going to say i know the answer for that trade-off in every household all right yeah again well put so almost ready for prime time getting there working but the last point i want to make about breast milk and breastfeeding is there's a reason why probiotics do have these these measurable, real, statistically significant, and reproducible biological I'm effects. I'm reading your mind. The word is co-evolved. That most of the probiotics that we use, they are things like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. The majority. I mentioned a couple other ones. There's there's a Streptococcus thermophilus. There are um, there are some anaerobes, anaerobic species. Um, brand name uh, Ganeden is one of those. I like the heat-loving strep, though, because right. that implies that when we kill strep by getting a fever, we kill the bad strep but not the good strep. Mm-hmm. And uh, the E. coli nissel strain that I mentioned earlier. So there are some non-breast milk-associated or milk-associated microbes. The majority, though, things that are in yogurt. Yogurt, of course, is the breast milk of cows. I guess you wouldn't call it breast milk. you just call it milk. Um, the grind milk of cows. <laughs> that's right. I think I've just ruined the dairy industry. <laughs> you definitely did. <laughs> but there's a reason why these mostly beneficial species are mostly milk-associated. And that's because mammals have evolved uh, strategies of selectively feeding those microbes that are the most beneficial and the most likely to benefit their offspring. And the main benefit that the offspring get, besides the things that we've talked about, protection from allergies, etc., is really protection from gastrointestinal diseases and diarrhea and early death from from diarrhea. So there's good work. Uh, A researcher by the name of Newberg has done a lot of work looking at different strains of uh, of bacteria in in the guts of, again, breast milk-fed babies and some of the components of breast milk that are are in there that provide great protection against dysentery. And a lot of the work's been done in kind of the developing world, uh, early work done in Mexico, um, a lot of work done in Brazil, uh, suggesting that if you have, a, have these dietary exposures, breast milk, and the microbes that are that are grown specifically from those those nutrients, they have a powerful impact in protecting from diarrhea. And that's some of the best evidence for probiotics has to do with uh, you know, protection from uh, diarrhea. Well, dysentery may be one of the most powerful evolutionary forces on us anyway, because up until this century, it killed more people than anything else. That's right. We don't see so much of it here in you know, Albuquerque in an industrialized economy and a first world city, although we may argue about the first world <laughs> designation for our fair city. We'll, we'll say we're the 1.75 world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, protection from diarrhea, uh, I forget if it's primary or secondary protection from Clostridium difficile or Clostridioides, they've just changed the name, the C. diff infection, which uh, we, we know is a microbiome problem. So that's news to me. What was gained by changing the name? Oh, I don't know. I don't even know why they did it. Why, why did we change any of these names? I don't know. Maybe, maybe Joe, some guy you named have... Joe Clostridium was suing them for defamation. There's, I'm sure there's a story behind it. Mm-hmm. I do think that there was a pushback, and... Uh, they were going to change the name to something that didn't start with the letter C. And someone said, you know, we use C. diff or C. difficile so commonly, and it's in all the textbooks, and we know what it is, that to change the genus name to something else It's uh, actually would be a, a pretty disaster. big deal to change some of these names because um, when you go back and research papers, you may wind up using the wrong search terms. You can miss a lot of stuff because you're using one name or the other, or you have to add more mesh terms. That's exactly right. So, but susceptibility to C. difficile 
is really a microbiome pro uh, problem. And we know from some pretty good randomized controlled trials that, and here's, here's one, this is, the study is called Probiotics for the Primary and Secondary Prevention of C. Difficile Infections, a Meta-Analysis and Systemic Review. And I know it's good for one and not the other. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember. All right, so they don't, yeah, they see none significantly improved secondary prevention, but they, they, they significantly improved primary prevention. So, so if I, you get a bowel prep for abdominal surgery, yeah. your chances of getting C. difficile aren't affected by eating live culture yogurt. So the secondary prevention is you already have C. diff, you're kind of getting over it. Can I give you probiotics Can to help you from getting a secondary, another infection? And it doesn't work as well for that. But if I, if I think that you're at high risk for getting C. diff, then if I prescribe you probiotics, there's pretty excellent evidence that, that I can help prevent you from getting it in the first place. Okay, so I had it the wrong way around then. No, okay. That's why I had to look it up too. Yeah. I get I got confused by this. Good. But that was that was one example where probiotics have pretty solid evidence. So I had a colonoscopy and I did in fact eat some yogurt for a while before and after to try to hedge my bets. I mean, we're gonna look that up. I can't imagine that we're the first people to think about that. Right. But maybe we are. I had an uneventful period, so, you know, mm -hmm. oh, good. I don't know if that means anything. I don't know what should have happened, but... I'm glad you survived it. It was all easy and smooth and stuff. So, evidence for probiotics. There's good evidence for specific strains and combinations of probiotics in patients undergoing colorectal surgery, in patients undergoing elective surgery. Uh, there's evidence that certain probiotics may reduce the risk of colds and upper respiratory tract infections, so things that we wouldn't think would have anything how to do with that. How robust is that evidence? Well, uh, here is one. These were preschool children. Oh, this one doesn't have to do with the respiratory infections, but it, it they gave kids lactobacillus rhamnosus GG. Uh, they were able to show, this is a Finland study, they were able to show among these Finnish preschool kids that uh, that it helped uh, change the gut microbiome, and these kids were less likely to go to the doctor, get sick, and then be prescribed antibiotics in the future. So there was some evidence. And of course, we know that a lot of antibiotic prescribing is for viral illnesses. So that's one, one piece of it. How does this tie in with, um, I've not seen any any, what I would call evidence for it, but a lot of people strongly believe that uh, dairy products increase mucus when you have a cold. Does that somehow relate to all this? Have you never heard that? No, no. Of yeah. course I've heard that, and I think I've experienced it. And I'm just wondering also why that would be. I don't know. You can imagine that some of the proteins in it are precursors for the muco mucoproteins, maybe. Uh, I don't really know. I don't know, A, if it's true, and B, how it would be connected, but I thought you might have some information. I don't. But here's our, maybe an answer to the question about the upper respiratory tract infections. This is a Cochrane review, and they do they do meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. This is old. This is from 2015. I'm a huge fan of the Cochrane analysis. These are good guys. So the key results were the probiotics were better than placebo in reducing the uh, number of people experiencing acute respiratory tract infections. How strong was the effect? Did they give it an estimate of effect size? Well, 47% was the, Less was the overall decrease. That's big. So we could look up this in terms of number needed to treat. If it's that if it's that much, we'd expect it. We wouldn't have to treat that many people. Two or three, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, and given how many people get a cold every year, that's billions and billions of dollars. Right. So let's talk briefly about the, the about some negative probiotic trials and, and some there was one that was that we participated in here at the University of New Mexico. Uh, this was a study looking at whether we can give probiotics to kids who have experienced diarrhea. And that study, unfortunately, it was recently published, but it was a negative or null result. So you, you didn't we didn't benefit kids who came into the ER with diarrhea by giving them antibiotics. As Thomas probiotics. Edison said, now I know one more way not to make a light bulb. Right. So not everything, of course, works, and there's going to be some evidence going in both directions. Good. It wouldn't be good science if we weren't getting that. Yeah. There's one other issue I think that we should talk about, which is that you know the FDA doesn't regulate supplements mm -hmm. in the United States, 
and most probiotics are sold as supplements. Now, if a manufacturer wants to make a specific health claim, like my probiotic is good for multiple sclerosis, they have to submit an investigational new drug application. They have to go through the whole process. This is, a, this is a, a, something that costs millions of dollars. And unless the manufacturer has a pretty good suspicion that it's gonna work, they're not gonna take that risk. So they can sell it and make some more vague health claim like it supports immune health. That's perfectly okay to say, right? If it's really vague. And they, can, understand and they the can sell it as a... I could say studies have shown that probiotics can reduce the incidence of colds in children. This stuff is full of probiotics. And then just stop there and you draw your own conclusions. But that verges on making a claim in my That mind. verges... So you might get in trouble with the FTC and, and with the FDA um, if you were a manufacturer making those claims. Anyway, it's... it's those a, would be true statements. It's a sticky... It's a sticky thing, but if it's not an advertisement, not a you know magazine ad, who reads magazines anymore? Also, too, when people say to the lay public, yeah. So this is a pretty dense podcast. I'm not sure how many of your listeners are lay public, but when somebody says to the lay public, studies have shown, that tells you nothing about the reproducibility of it. There's tons of times when an initial study shows something and the next ten refute it, mm-hmm. but a study showed this, so now studies have shown blah blah blah. What you really want to know is the reproducibility, the robustness of those findings. And that's not usually something people have any idea how to get to. I mean, I think about it all the time, and it still can be hard to get to. If there's not a Cochrane review or something, or somebody's been paid a lot of money to do this for me, it can be quite tricky. But even the Cochrane review may not may not actually help you with your individual patient. Because maybe, it's, let's say the Cochrane review says that, yeah, people that have done studies involving probiotics that may, may vary in species and strain and population, that there's this benefit... That doesn't mean that your patient that you're seeing in the ER who you send to Walgreens or the, or the local pharmacy to pick up whatever probiotic they happen to have, if that's going to help them. Fair enough, but that's yeah. even true for things like antibiotics. I mean, right. to some extent, all you ever get are better odds. Yeah. And I'm happy with that. I can live with that. The point that I was going to make is that because manufacturers of probiotics are not incentivized to go the investigational new drug route. In fact, they're disincentivized to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna make vague health claims, and it's gonna make our life as physicians harder to try to make specific recommendations for specific patients. I did want to say that the conference I went to recently was in Vancouver, Canada, and there are there are some Canadian nonprofit organizations that have done the work for people in Canada. They've looked at the kinds of probiotics that are available on the market there, and they have done the Cochrane review sort of analysis for each one of them. So if you have a patient wow. who comes in and says, hey, I've got some irritable bowel syndrome symptoms and what probiotic can I take? They can actually go to this reference that um, that will tell them about some potential probiotics that might be beneficial. That's that the form that I thought, thought this branch of medicine would take. That's how I thought it was going to play out. So I, as far as I know, there's no analog of that organization in the United States. And there's going to be different products and different foods. And, of course, we're a little bit different from Canadians, maybe. <laughs> yeah, American physiology is totally different than that Canadian physiology. They're, yeah. Ours is way better. Their vitamin D levels are, you know, they're completely deficient. I'm kidding. The first line of the Republican platform is we believe in American exceptionalism. So, clearly, our physiology would be different than Canadians. Yep. Best physiology of all time. Yeah. Our American physiology. I could totally imagine probiotics would work on that kind of an inferior physiology. <laughs> well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should wrap things up. Any uh, any closing thoughts? Well, I like to leave people with something to yeah. useful to pay them for listening. And it sounds like at least active culture yogurt has some reasonable, if not clinically huge, benefits as a, a significant part of people's diet. If well, even lactose intolerant people can eat yogurt. Yeah. So uh, that's a good thing to, to leave it with. I do have one final thought, which is something you brought up earlier on, which is the microbe, the probiotic has to take up residence in your gut and has to live there and survive there. It turns out that that is rarely the case, that you're going to transform your microbiome with a single pill of a probiotic. Um, there is, your gut is already colonized by other organisms, and it may not be a favorable habitat depending on your specific situation and whether that microbe is evolved to deal with you. So probiotics need to be a dietary habit and not a one-time infusion. That was one of the lessons from the conference that I went to. So you do need repeated exposures to them. 
And there are some people that even sell dead probiotics. And I got a bottle of this in my in my home right now. What would be the So point? these are pasteurized killed microbiotics. It's possible because of the signaling um, situation that microbes produce signals like those free fatty acids mm -hmm. that affect your physiology, even if the animal's dead. That, that there are molecules and proteins on specific kinds of probiotics that have the potential to impact your immune system or other parts of your, of your body, even if the animal's dead. And there are been several studies that have, have looked at this. Well, in the Caribbean, speed bumps are called sleeping policemen, and they actually slow traffic down. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's that's probably a good place to leave it. Well, thanks, thanks, audience, for uh, for listening again. Uh, um, we our next one is going to be uh, a podcast involving uh, this work by our friend and colleague Marco. Um, so look forward to that one. I, I also, before I sign off here, I want to mention that uh, I did a recent podcast with my um, research collaborator and friend Athena Actipus. Uh, her new podcast is called zombified so i'm going to encourage you to check out her podcast and subscribe to it uh, and i'm going to post the episode that i did with her uh, as a special bonus episode on the evolution medicine podcast and we'll see you next week <laughs>